This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glišić, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Valerie Verder about her debut novel, Thieves. Valerie is an art writer, an author of fiction, and a doctoral candidate in film and visual studies at Harvard University. Her critical, creative, and scholarly work um, has been published in Public Culture, Bomb, Flash Art, and has been performed at Participant Incorporated in New York City, an art space in New Haven. Valerie, welcome to the uh, books, New Books in Literature. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, now, ordinarily, I discuss books on Russian and Eastern European history and art history on this podcast. Um, so today's episode is a slight departure for me. Uh, but uh, Valerie's novel is set in New York art world. And um, I'm very interested in works of fiction that draw upon the history of art and are generally set in art context. Um, and to help me explore some of the literary aspects of Valerie's work, um, I have recorded the help of my friend and colleague, uh, Liz Bradke. Now, um, Liz is a writer, editor, and communication specialist who works for the Australian Library and Information Association. Uh, Liz has studied and taught at um, the English departments at the University of Melbourne and New York University. And her poetry has been featured in The Age, uh, VoiceWorks magazine, and Gut Cult. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Eva, and welcome, Valerie. Um, now, Thieves is a work of autofiction, or, or has been described as such, um, and it explores the life of a young woman named Valerie, uh, who works in a New York art gallery. Uh, the book was published early, earlier this year and has been awarded the Fans Modern Prize in prose. Um, and before we turn to discuss uh, the book, however, uh, perhaps, Valerie, you could tell us um, a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Thieves is my first novel, and it is um, almost the first piece of fiction that I ever wrote. Before writing this novel, I wrote only one short story. Um, and I, I think that it's kind of important for me to note that I don't come from a creative writing background. Um, 
in fact, I had never taken a creative writing class um, and have, uh, I, I don't have an MFA in creative writing. Um, I come to writing from a background in the visual arts. Um, so I did my undergraduate work at SUNY New Paltz, which is a small state school in the Hudson Valley, and I studied painting. Um, and after I graduated from undergrad, I began working in museums and galleries. First, I worked as a tour guide or gallery attendant um, at Dia Beacon, which is a, a large minimalist and post-minimalist uh, museum in the Hudson Valley, and uh, learned uh, both how to um, kind of be uh, among art, like be with art for long periods of time, just standing and watching artworks, and also learned how to speak about art by giving tours um, there. And and then when I moved to New York, um, I left the nonprofit and museum world and started working in galleries as an art writer. Um, and specifically was working at a gallery called Dominique Levy Gallery um, as the head of research and writing. And after about a decade in the New York art world, um, I, I realized that, um, and, and I had written the manuscript of Thieves during this time, uh, which I hope that we'll get to speak a little bit more um, later in the interview about that writing process. Um, but uh, during this time working in the New York art world, uh, I realized that I, I wanted a kind of slower pace. Um, the art world moves at a rapid fire speed. You, uh, you're writing and thinking kind of progresses with the speed of exhibitions and sales. So um, I moved to academia, applied to doctoral programs, and am now um, as you said uh, in the introduction at Harvard, uh, working on my uh, working on my degree in film and visual studies. Yeah, uh, terrific! No, Valerie, your your debut novel Thieves uh, draws very much on this experience of you working in, in a gallery um, and and your knowledge as a visual arts and, and film scholar as well. Um, can you tell us about the interplay between visual arts and fiction writing in your work? Um, and also, I'm interested as you know, an art historian, are there any particular artworks that served um, as inspiration for Thieves? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, it's difficult to describe the interplay between visual arts specifically and literature or fiction writing Um because I think that so much of my experience in working with um, artworks, working with pieces of visual art, is writing about them almost in a fictional way. Um, so before I was in academia, when I was working in galleries, um, I didn't really have a um, any kind of injunction or anyone looking over my shoulder, uh, making sure that I was speaking truthfully and rigorously as a scholar uh, about the artworks that I was working with. I was working in a gallery, um, though, where we were dealing with, um, it was a blue chip gallery. And what that means is that we're dealing with um, usually secondary market artworks, which means that the works have been sold before. They're not coming directly from the artist's studio. Um, so we're receiving them from museums or collectors. Um, and 
repackaging them to try to sell them again. And my role in this was to write about the artworks in a way that was compelling enough um, to make them sellable again for a much higher price. And when I say artworks, I'm talking about like um, $50 million Frank Stella paintings that we're trying to sell to the CEO of Walmart, right? Like these are kind <laughs> yeah. of no small thing. Um, and, and also like the language that I'm using um, is the language of sales, which is also very close to the language of fiction. It's the language of persuasion. Um, so writing about a painting by Frank Stella or Mark Rothko became this kind of extraordinary discursive performance that I could do because I was writing anonymously. I was writing um, in from the kind of nowhere voice of a sales text. Um, so I, I love this question because it, uh, it gets to um, some of my favorite artists that I feel actually closer to than I feel to any contemporary fiction writer. Um, artists like Andrea Fraser, who are similarly interrogating uh, the relationship of art discourse to artworks, to artists. Um, and Andrea Fraser has this extraordinary uh, early piece uh, from uh, early performance from 1989 called Museum Highlights, um, where she takes on this pseudonym. Uh, I think Jane Castleton is the pseudonym, this kind of like, uh, like perfect, uh, like a scholarly, mousy Jane yeah. Castleton. Um, <laughs> so and, as well. Yeah, exactly. No, that's I, I hadn't even made that connection, but there's this kind of like, um, yeah, she becomes like a romance writer for the museum. Um, and she, she gives this tour of the Philadelphia art museum and it starts off in the way that any museum tour starts off a kind of dry, but welcoming, enticing, um, you know, almost bringing museum goers through the museum as if it was a shopping mall. Um, and then it spins out and gets more and more bizarre. And by the end, she's describing like the beauty and splendor of a water fountain. And, and the museum goers are actually thinking they're on a tour. So they're so confused at what's going on here. Um, uh, she has another piece called Official Welcome that she did uh, for a a private group of like high level collectors. Um, and in this piece, she's giving a, a kind of effusive thank you speech for receiving uh, an award from these very fancy art world people. And in, in the middle of her speech, she begins stripping um, until she's naked, except for a Gucci thong and high heels. And she becomes the art object. Um, and, and what I love about these works, and, and there are so many other works, mostly by um, female performance artists, um, that, that they, they really interrogate and kind of put themselves and their bodies on the line to ask the question, what is the relationship between um, the art object uh, the thing that is me, like myself, uh, my name, um, the, the kind of brand of myself that circulates, and then the discourse that is used um, to create value around 
me, my work, um, my name, my identity. Um, and I just found myself when I was working in galleries uh, surrounded by these questions all the time. And it felt like having comrades to know that that some of these performance artists were grappling with the same questions um yeah yeah i have to say a lot of reading reading uh, thieves a, a lot of uh, these performance works come to my mind as well um the relationship between valerie and her um love interest ted um really reminded me of the interplay between um the work of sophie carl and paul austin when he sort of scripts um stuff for her and she performs it and a lot of contemporary Russian um, uh, performance art uh, that especially especially focuses on the exactly theme of thieving and shoplifting as a, as a kind of a social statement. Um, so it was really yeah, uh, terrific to read a little bit about, uh, yeah, in fiction form, uh, this, this uh, uh, I guess, a reflection of contemporary performance art in, in, in some way. Yeah. Sophie Call is another artist that I was thinking about. There's a way in which she turns... Um, uh, I, I think she's so close to fiction writers like Chris Krauss, um, uh, who kind of turn uh, the heterosexual female position uh, into this kind of like monstrous art maker position. You know, we have this kind of really simplistic trope of the like grouchy, solitary, mid-century male artist alone in his studio um, that is kind of impenetrable for uh, women who were attempting to enter the art world as makers at that time. And I think that what someone like Sophie Call does is says like, okay, if I can't enter as a maker, I'll enter as the love interest, but then I will turn that role against you know against the solitary genius male artist and i will transform my exclusion into my art yeah fantastic that's yeah um really interesting (laughs) engagement with that type of work yeah um i'm in a i'm not an art historian at all but i'm fascinated by that the conversation that just happened Um, but i will pivot us a little bit to um a genre question uh as eva said in the introduction valerie your novel could reasonably be described as a work of autofiction, which has you know a long and, and rich history um you share a name and certain experiences with your protagonist and i know you've spoken in other pieces about those elements of of your life that provided the inspiration for the text so my question is to what extent do you see thieves as part of that tradition of writing or is the novel almost arguing against that urge to classify because it has such a sharp investigation into the slipperiness of identity. So more succinctly, is it ultimately unimportant where one Valerie ends and another one begins? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the tradition of autofiction is, uh, this question of genre <laughs> is, it, it's always so tricky because, um, uh, like much like uh, you know uh, the the way that I described my life in in the introduction, um, it bridges the commercial and the academic. There are really good reasons uh, for a scholar to identify a particular tradition um, and be able to investigate it and I identify kind of certain formal tropes. But at the end of the day, I almost think that genre is more a marketing tool than anything else. Um, 
And classifying my book as a work of autofiction um, does a lot to market it to a particular audience to say like, oh, if you liked the work of Ben Lerner or, um, you know, uh, who's who's another one um there there are almost too many because uh autofiction is such a sheila heady you know like it's a it's a saturated it saturates the contemporary literary market um uh and so it's a useful entree it's it's useful for me to say oh this is a work of autofiction but what i also wanted to do i think that you're precisely right liz is question the possibility of any coherent self that I could stand apart from and then fictionalize or like thinly fictionalize. Um, And I think that uh, the tradition of autofiction that I'm interested in um, would come from Proust and would be the kind of autofiction where the author is so uncertain that they even have a coherent self that they kind of have to write into being themselves daily. And then what happens is that this daily writing of the self becomes a, a questioning of the fact that a self can even be said to exist outside of that writing, right? Like the writing and the self are in such a relation that the self doesn't exist separately from being written. And the writing doesn't exist except for having been written by a a certain self. Um, And then, and then that also becomes tricky because um, when I wrote, when I wrote the book, um, I was not uh, any kind of name that could be associated with an author, right? Like the name Valerie Werder didn't mean anything. Um, and and writing this book, though, and publishing it did produce uh, this name that now I have to go out into the world and, and represent. <laughs> so, you know, here Just I am on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It, and, and, and it's an effect of that, that I'm even on this podcast at all, or, you know, making myself a website or attempting to, to kind of promote and circulate this thing that appears as Valerie. Um, and I, so, so I really appreciate this kind of like, calling into question of uh, the, the genre of autofiction at all, Liz, that you're prompting here. Um, because I think that, that so much of contemporary autofiction um, can a bit lapse into uh, like contemporary social media or um, like publicity cultures desire for confessional narratives and self-revelation and, um, you know, just like a kind of exposure and vulnerability of, uh, you know, shameful, but ultimately true interiority that I'm not certain exists outside of the injunction to produce it, to sell it if that makes sense. It, it makes perfect sense. Um, and I, the reason I sort of formulated that question is because I was thinking throughout when I was reading it about how what was fictionalised and what wasn't and did she really steal mm. all that stuff? <laughs> well, you know, what I actually think it it absolutely doesn't matter. And, um, you know, we are dealing with versions of Valerie's, endless versions of Valerie's. So it got me thinking about 
yeah, how that maps onto genre. But um, and I won't ask you if you actually saw it. <laughs> <laughs> but, Thank you. Yeah, uh, we'll re- keep that uh, for our readers too. Yeah, uh, and listeners yes, to discover there. exactly. <laughs> um, Thank you. But to- talking about the marketing and sales pitch, uh, Valerie. Um, Thieves reveals this tension between the main character's passion for art. Um, she works in an art gallery. She also studies at a prestigious art program. Um, and then this reality of the art market and the academic world where art is often commodified and, and turned into a status symbol. Um, and I think you capture this really beautifully, in particular in the way you treat so-called art speak um, in your book, in the way that the protagonist produces kind of gallery materials such as press releases, sales notes, uh, catalog essays. Um, I was wondering if you can focus or, or maybe read a section from Thieves that focuses on art writing and maybe um, talk a little bit about this tension between art um, and, and the art market and, and academia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's see. Maybe I'll be, maybe I'll read from the very beginning of the book. Um, I'm going to read, so I'm going to read actually from the first few pages, but I, uh, I won't read the very beginning. So we, we begin with Valerie sitting at her desk at work and she's, she's kind of, um, questioning, uh, basically having a a kind of crisis, should I leave my job? Um, And uh, so, so I'll begin, I'll begin. Most games begin innocently enough. Valerie found herself gradually forced to up the no context game stakes to reap its rewards. The last time she'd played had also been the most serious. She sat at her desk at work, tracking the receptionist, Sylvie, on the art gallery's surveillance footage software. It was, by all metrics, a normal workday. Valerie assembling strings of words meant to sell objects, Sylvie orchestrating deliveries and recognizing recognizable faces at the front desk. At 2 p.m., the swarm of pixels that spelled Sylvie stepped outside for a smoke break, and Valerie hurried downstairs to join her. The two walked in diagonals around each other to ward off the late winter cold, amusing themselves by comparing stories. Sylvie, I have to research and order at least 12 different brands of espresso from five different countries because the Japanese collector was offended that Emilio only had Ethiopian when he came to look at the Basquiat. Valerie, did you hear that Nick had to fly to Milan yesterday to pick up the catalogs for the opening? Out of the blue, they didn't even let him go home to change, and he didn't even have time to leave the airport once he got there. The printer met up The printer met him outside Terminal 1 with a box, and he caught the red-eye back an hour later. Sylvie. FedEx couldn't ship the catalogs here in time. Valerie. They're big books, really heavy. Flying him out was cheaper. They're at my desk if you want to come take a look. Sylvie. Fuck. I wish I'd known. I would have asked him to get some coffee from the duty-free while he was at it. Bet the Japanese don't mind Italian espresso. She stopped and took a drag to finesse her joke. Ah, shit. Never mind. Italian espresso could have been grown anywhere, huh? Valerie. Yeah, anywhere except Italy. Valerie returned to her desk and stared at the catalogs in their mute brown boxes, sealed with shiny packing tape and stamped in two languages from international travel. 
She had written these books, the catalog texts, an introduction by the gallery owner, and the neatly laid out and illustrated chronology charting the artist's life. The main essay by the famous academic, a former professor of hers, who'd told her that he was busy, much too busy to compile my notes into a proper text, but perhaps you'd like to take a stab at it. She took a stab at it, scrapping his notes and inventing anew, and he thanked her for being a wonderful copy editor and barely touching my words at all. And she sealed the envelope containing his $7,000 fee and instructed the designer as to how large, precisely, the byline should be. She paid for image rights, checked captions and citations, organized the material in chronological order, situated the story she'd created into the larger story, the better story, the story of art. She wrote the press release, made up quotes about how pleased the gallery was, so pleased to represent the artist, and how thrilled the estate was, so thrilled to work with the gallery. She drafted sales pitches and highlights lists, conducted interviews from the gallery owner's email address with reporters who addressed her by the gallery owner's name. Dear Helene, the exhibition would be good. The work would sell. Valerie hadn't seen the paintings in person. She hadn't needed to. The language wrote itself. I think I'll stop there. Yeah, that's a terrific section. Thank you, Valerie, for reading that for us. Of course. Yes, and um, I think you could probably hear us giggling a little bit. <laughs> uh, just as a side note, there is so much of this book that is is incredibly funny, um, and just yeah, especially the uh, Eva and I coming from academia. Um, Yes, the things that you do for the professorial class sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it just, yeah, the piece really captures, and throughout the, the book, there's a number of these really terrific uh, sections on, on art, art speak, really. Um, and I think that tension um, really between art being the most meaningful thing a human can produce, and this is uh, what... what uh, Actually, what one of my professors said the first day I started art history uh, degrees that, you know, welcome to art history degree. You are doing the most important thing ever, right, by studying <laughs> art, um, which, which is true. But it's also it can also be the most banal and, and, and hollow um, mm-hmm. <laughs> thing as well. And that exploration of that, the most meaningful and the most um, um, unimportant in a way uh, activity is, is, yeah, really, I think, through, comes through uh, these these uh, passages, and yeah, I, I do hope um, our listeners pick up a copy, and yeah, I think yeah, they will enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I love this this tension between the kind of most meaningful and most hollow is uh, I think exactly on point, and it is something that I struggled with so much when I was working in galleries and selling art, and I continue to struggle with it as an academic because you know as as an academic, if I continue to write about art objects, I'm not absolved from the the kind of economy of value um, at all. Uh, you know, when I worked in galleries, I would often turn to academic texts and quote famous names in order to bolster the value of a work. If an academic is discussing a work, it, it's of a higher value. And, and yet I think that... Um, it becomes really important for me to remember that art as a, like, as a kind of um, uh, discipline and especially art in the way that we think about it today, like objects that 
circulate and um, that people kind of stand around and debate and discuss and have feelings in front of. Um, this emerges uh, with, like historically, it's coterminous with the rise of capitalism. There is no category of art that is extricable from its commoditization. Um, and, and so, you know, I would be sitting at my desk at the gallery, like writing these really silly kind of texts, just how many adjectives can I squeeze in one sentence? Um, and, and be hating the fact that like, there's this gorgeous painting in front of me, or like a, an, like a, a work that I really respect. Um, uh, there's a there's a scene in the novel toward the end when Valerie is being asked to write about the work of Anna Mendieta, and at first she says like No, I won't. This is I, this is blood money. Like I'm I'm capitalizing on the the gorgeous work this, that that this woman made and the trauma and violence of her murder um, by by Carl Andre. Um, in order to sell these objects. And at first Valerie says like, no, I won't do it. But then, then she ultimately does do it. And, um, and I think that it's really impossible to have a kind of stance of purity with regard to, um, to participating in an art market. Uh, you can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like you can't have art separable from the market. Um, that leads quite nicely into uh, my next question, which is uh, about alienation um, and how language and writing can can sort of alienate, uh, particularly uh, in this novel. Um, I was really struck, Valerie, by um, the role that language plays throughout. So really early on, we get a passage where uh, Valerie is sort of emptied out by language. She seeks that feeling. She's often seduced by it. Uh, as we've talked about um, in the earlier question, she uses it absolutely masterfully, especially in her job, and she's able to use it to mimic and, and all sorts of things. Um, but I did notice that when um, we have these uh, contemplation of moments of where Valerie contemplates language, we also get um, p- uh, sequences in which she feels totally alienated from her own body or anything resembling, I guess, a fixed self. I actually did a keyword search, not, you know, a little bit overly methodical, um, just sort of see if I could track, you know, when language and body appear, you know, uh, in proximity to each other. And it's, it's quite frequently in this book, you know, by design. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you see that relationship between language and embodiment? And does either Valerie, either of the Valeries think that language ultimately fails to represent anything in a meaningful way, that it, it has fixed limits that, you know, that ultimately fail to represent. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Sax.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think that I'm going to have to kind of abandon my critical academic uh, position to answer this question and, and speak as speak as like a, you know, take my liberties as an artist, as a fiction writer. Um, um, because I think that there's something so particular about choosing to be the kind of artist who works in language rather than another medium. Um, so, uh, I mean, many, many mediums can be representational. Like a, a painting can represent something. You can paint a picture of a person. Um, and, uh, and, and language can be representational. You can write a book that's a work of fiction that tells a kind of coherent story about a person named Valerie who works at a gallery, etc. Um, language can be abstract. We know, like poetry exists. Uh, but I'm a fiction writer. I deal in, uh, you know, like my job is to communicate, to represent in language. Um, and so many of the artworks that I was working with when I was at the gallery were non-representational. We specialized in post-war uh, painting. So I would be in front of a painting by Mark Rothko. And what words am I going to use to describe the kind of luminosity and absorption and intensity of that experience? He's painting after the sublime, and I'm standing there in my body um, feeling things um, and to to translate this and I think that like um, the here here's where I'll here's where I'll make like big claims as an artist not as an academic like the the, the aesthetic impulse to me stems from this kind of overwhelm of feeling in the body that has nowhere to go like when I when I when I am feeling something so much or when I'm so in my body um, and there's no action that I can take uh, in order to kind of resolve or express that then then art making would be a place to go. Um, and yet language for me immediately retransports me back into the representational. So I'm trying to take this thing that is entirely sensory and, and my tool, the tool in which I feel most comfortable always takes me out of that experience. Um, it's like when you're listening to like a gorgeous piece of music and then you start thinking about it and then you're not listening anymore. Um, you the, like the kind of like language forms this kind of veil that separates you from the senses. Um, and so there's this, there's this real tension that the fiction writer deals with of, uh, of wanting to just completely disappear and uh, submerge in language as a medium. And I do think that language can be autonomous from representation, like language um, need not be instrumental. I need not always be saying something that is going to sell an object or even that's going to like uh, get me like if I say to you like oh could you please pass the salt um, like that that will get you to pass me the salt uh, language doesn't always have to get someone to pass me the salt or someone to buy something that I'm selling um, but it does usually communicate um, and so it does usually uh, 
like put me in a system of transaction or a system like an economic or relational system um, that that takes me a bit out of the singular experience of embodiment. And yet I think that this kind of negotiation uh, between like the singular experience of embodiment and uh, economies of relation, be they financial, um, libidinal, erotic, sensory, um, like this is uh, this is kind of the very, uh, the very problem that is, um, that I want to grapple with in my, in my writing. And it's interesting to me because it's an unresolvable problem. It's a problem with no end. Mm. Yeah. I like what you say about language can be sort of autonomous from representation. And as someone who works in communications and frequently has to persuade people to, uh, buy or buy into something <laughs> um, that's a very appealing concept there's <laughs> another way another way of, of thinking about that dichotomy um valerie eva and i have a favorite phrase which is the titular moment which we find <laughs> particularly funny um, when it happens in films um but i am gonna <laughs> switch to the titular moment of your novel um now there are obviously there are literal thieves in this novel and um for anyone who's thinking about reading the book, the sequences are, are quite exhilarating and, you know, often quite anxiety producing. Um, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how the idea of theft uh, applies to other aspects of Valerie's life and just a little bit about its larger metaphorical function in the novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, exactly as you say, there are uh, kind of very outright moments of theft. So Valerie begins shoplifting when she's quite young with her sister at the CVS. And um, what they what they begin shoplifting is makeup. Um, and uh, makeup is this kind of forbidden object when you are a 11-year-old, you know, 12-year-old young woman. Um, uh, it both represents a kind of uh, transitional life phase. Um, and it is a... It, it, it turns you into an object of beauty, a kind of consumable object. Um, it enters you into an economy of relation that is um, uh, the kind of social relations of romance and, you know, dating and popularity and friendships. Um, and uh, and um, and so I think that. Uh, you know, when, when you're young, uh, you, you don't have any money. You're relying on uh, your parents or like pocket change to, uh, to buy you things. Um, and uh, so Valerie and her sister begin shoplifting makeup um, as a kind of way to steal themselves into social roles. And uh and so steal themselves into different selves, right? Like stealing becomes a way to transform one's identity. Um, and when Valerie begins shop, shoplifting later in life um, with the uh, with a kind of very charismatic career shoplifter, um, uh, Ted, um, this becomes a kind of attempt at subversion. Um, she, she feels herself kind of cohering into the identity of the gallery girl and cohering into this kind of like really perfect, nice, generic 
easy object, uh, the kind of young white gallery girl of New York City, highly educated, very pleasing to all of the collectors who come in um, to purchase art objects. Um, and and she she wants to have a secret. She wants to um, steal herself into a different identity. Um, and she begins shoplifting with Ted, and uh, and then this kind of sl- like extraordinary slipperiness of identity begins to to trouble her and trouble their relationship, um, uh, because you know when one is um, acting as a lawful consumer. Uh, this is a this is a really good way to keep one in a particular social role, right? Like you make a certain amount of money, you live in a particular area, you buy things that you can afford from stores that you can walk into. Um, and so your your role, your identity, um, who you are kind of coheres around these objects that you can surround yourself with. Um, and uh, for Valerie and Ted, and especially for Ted, um, identity becomes a kind of game of, you know, w- w- what can I become today? Who can I be today? Um, so theft becomes a way of playing with identity in a, in a way that's quite dangerous and, and quite manipulative um, because uh, it, it turns the kind of social transaction between Ted and anyone that he's interacting with into a, a hall of mirrors. You never can be quite sure who this person is. You can never fix him to a social role or to a job, to an income, to a home. Um, because he's stealing all of that. And this is really appealing to Valerie precisely because she wants to get out of this, uh, you know, like really rigid economy that, that kind of, uh, you know, gives you an injunction as to like, you will be this. Um, but it's also, it also is a, is a means of manipulation. Um, and then I think that Valerie begins to think about thieving on a, on a kind of larger scale and begins to think about, the way in which her life is being like her time is kind of being uh, stolen from her by her boss who then, um, you know, like uh, will sell a painting uh, will sell. There's I think there's a scene where she's thinking about um, an Andy Warhol silkscreen that is uh, worth like 800 of her lives. Um, You know, if she's doing the, the calculation of how much her boss will pay her, over the course of her life. Um, And it becomes this kind of like really, uh, like really damaging nexus that Valerie is involved in where, you know, her lover has nothing to do with um, money and, and everything to do with like the way in which products can form him different identities. Her boss is like uh, selling these objects that, that she begins to see as representing like, hundreds and hundreds of lifetimes of hers and uh and so there seems to be kind of no escape from buying and selling and buying and selling and thieving start to become inextricable from each other Mm. that's a fantastic answer um and as you were speaking i was thinking about 
I suppose the idea of theft, you think of something being taken and therefore an absence, but the way you're describing it, it's also so productive. It produces other selves and it, and it transgresses, um, you know, categories that we, um, that we're comfortable with that, that get really disrupted by that act. So yeah, thank you. That was a wonderful answer. Um, I'm going to move on to just a, a fairly simple question about voice in the novel there's really strategic shifts uh specifically between the second and third person narrative so i just wondered if you're willing to share how you made the decisions about which voice to use and and when obviously readers will you know that the text will enables readers to make their own decisions about that but uh, i would love to hear from you about um how you structured it yeah absolutely um so at first when I was writing, this was rather intuitive. Um, I, I began writing fragments and writing chapters and some seemed to really make sense in a third person voice, um, others in a first person voice. And, um, and I, I just kind of went with it. I didn't question what was working in the writing. Um, and, and then when I started to arrange the fragments, it, it became clear to me that what I was trying to do was to write Valerie into a first-person voice, to take this kind of very alienated young woman um, write an autofiction, like write about her. Uh, and she's also to some degree myself. Um, but to write about her in a, in a third person felt real. It felt right. Like I felt so alienated from, um, this person that I was at the gallery at the time that it made sense only to write about her in a third person. And, uh, and then when Valerie begins shoplifting with Ted, um, I, the, the narrative moves into a second person voice. So suddenly the viewer is addressed as a you. Um, and what this does is it joins the viewer with this narrator, with this main character, Valerie, who they've been reading about in the third person in this kind of very alienated way. And suddenly the reader is joined to this character who they've been kind of held at arm's length from at, at precisely the moment that she starts to do this very morally ambiguous thing, which is shoplifting. Um, and so the reader is implicated in this act. And um, and I think that this was really important to me because I, I knew that it would be really easy to judge a like a young white woman working in a, you know, educated, working in a very privileged cultural sector who decides that she wants to, you know, rebel by shoplifting kind of would be easy to roll your eyes at her a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, clearly I, I, I'm rolling my eyes at, you know, my own main <laughs> character right now is yeah. the way that I'm describing her. Yeah. Um, but I, but I did want to say, you know, um, you know, don't be so quick to judge Valerie. Perhaps if you had been slotted into the social role that she had been slotted into, you would be doing the same things. And I, I didn't want to allow my narrator or my reader the space to kind of escape um, with a kind of critical distance from Valerie in that moment. Um, and, and as she's undertaking these acts that then the reader is implicated in as you, um, I wanted her to feel that she was kind of growing closer and closer to, um, to kind of 
getting her own voice, being able to speak in a first person. Um, and, and the narr- narrative does shift to that first person. I, um, at a, at a critical moment in her shoplifting career. Um, and, and yet as soon as the narrative shifts to the first person, I, um, her former identity falls away and she's kind of voided of everything that she has been. Um, she, she escapes to, she, she goes off to a different city. Um, she, and she leaves her job and, um, uh, she's kind of in this position of having, of of having been emptied of a self at the very moment that she can speak for herself. Um, and, uh, and this seemed both important because of what we were speaking about before with this kind of calling to, into question of identity and, and also like rather sad. Um, and so the, the book does end with one final page written in the impersonal. Um, so one, one, one does this, one does that. And, um, and when I was writing the book, uh, Overall, what I wanted to do was to kind of um, turn myself, like not not look at the self as a like personal, um, like a, you know vulnerable thing that I was trying to express, but kind of try to turn myself generic. Try to turn to say like, okay, what if I did look at myself as if I was just this social position, <laughs> um, uh, and really interrogate that. And, and yet the, the genericness of Valerie is always this very specific, like, um, historically situated in the contemporary moment in a particular industry, um, in a particular body. Um, it's this kind of false generic, um, of the young white American woman. Um, and so the final page of the book, uh, transform, like kind of shifts into a more broad universal generic. Um, uh, but but suddenly that universal generic is unhinged from any body. It just exists in the, the impersonal pronoun of one. Um, and so I think that, that the kind of any universality that can be found in the book is found on this final page. And it's where language, um, it, it's the closest that I think that I tried to get to language being that autonomous medium that we were talking about. Um, language existing in and for itself and, and kind of opening onto a a different possible world where perhaps art need not be so tied up in this extractive, violent, uh, capitalist economy where, you know, gender need not be this thing that's ascribed to Valerie and then that she has to perform, um, that language could maybe, not only be a tool that like fixes and identifies and represents uh, identity, but could be a, a way to open out onto different speculative possibilities. Fantastic. Thank you. And that, since we're speaking about process a little bit and <laughs> decision-making, uh, I'm going to switch my questions around a bit and, and ask you about um, the, the writing process uh, when it first began. So I did read that uh, with great admiration that the first draft was written in two and a half months and largely in isolation. So I just would love you to tell us a bit more about what that experience was like and um, what the editorial process after that initial um, burst of writing was like as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you for this question. I love to talk about this. Um, um, so I, I wrote the book when I was 26 years old and I was working at a gallery at the time. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Dominique Levy gallery. And, um, I was, uh, officially I was called the head of writing and research, but unofficially everyone at the gallery called me, uh, referred to me as the voice of the gallery. Um, and, um, and this was a kind of very sinister thing because, uh, the gallery is a, it's a corporation, it's a brand. Um, but it also has, it bears the name of its founder, Dominique Levy, who is my immediate boss. So I was both the voice of the gallery and the voice of this woman, Dominique Levy. Um, and, um, under the auspices of my job, I did official gallery writing. So I wrote press releases, sales notes for artworks, um, exhibition catalogs, um, any kind of, you know, official gallery writing. But I also wrote Dominique's personal correspondence. I wrote emails and letters. I did interviews in her name. Um, If she had to give a speech or write a piece for a magazine or even write the acknowledgments for some of our exhibition catalogs, I was doing all of that. Um, And it was a really high pressure, high intensity job. I was writing all day. I would receive writing assignments at 2 a.m. I would, you know, and, you know, expect them to be done by noon. Um, and, uh, and so I had kind of, uh, I became a kind of language producing machine. Um, as I, as I said, I'd never taken a creative writing course, so I had no training in any kind of fiction writing. Um, I learned how to write by by being kind of, uh, you know, uh, forced by my boss to produce language very quickly and efficiently. Um, and, uh, and so I, I kind of, uh, realized one day like, wow, I'm, I'm authoring all of these texts or I'm writing all of these texts, but I'm not authoring a single thing. Um, my name means nothing. And yet I'm writing all day um, in this voice that both is and is not my own. Um, and and I had become so accustomed to that point to uh, in the art of uh, fabrication um, that I it became very easy for me to invent a world in which I might write a book. And, uh, and so I told my boss um, that I had received a very prestigious writing residency. Uh, two and a half month long writing residency. This was a total lie. I had written one short story at that point. I had no such writing residency. Um, And anyone who knew anything about the writing world would have seen my lie immediately, but she had no idea. She, She believed it. And she granted me a two and a half month sabbatical so that I could take this very fancy residency. Um, and and so this was all very sudden. Um, I, I didn't really plan it out very well um, uh, because I had no idea what I wanted to write. I just knew that I, I wanted to take this skill that I had and do something different with it. Um, a friend of a friend of mine had a cabin in rural Tennessee um, that I could rent very cheaply. Uh, and so I went down there and um, and I just... I really isolated myself. I, um, 
the internet went out in the first week of the cabin and I didn't get it fixed. Um, I turned all of the mirrors uh, to the like away so that I couldn't even see myself so that I had like absolutely no human interaction. Um, like I, I really like inhabiting this kind of like, I'm going to be an artist now kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I had two and a half months and I, and yeah, I had true. told myself <laughs> I was going to write a book. Um, yeah. So what I did was I Googled the word count of um, some of my favorite novels and um, some famous pieces of contemporary literary fiction and realized, okay, a novel is about 90,000 words. Um, I divided 90,000 by the amount of days I had at the writing residency, the quote unquote writing residency. and uh, and realized that it was, you know, I, I could produce about a thousand to fifteen hundred words of text uh, every day um, because I'd been doing that in my job. And so uh, you'll notice that the novel is written in these kind of very short chapters that are all approximately the length of like a of like an art world press release <laughs> um, uh, because yeah, that's, uh, that's what I knew how to write. Um, so I started to write these fragments and had, I mean, uh, I had no fiction writing training. I didn't know you were supposed to like plot out the novel in advance, do the character development, all of that. No, I, I just started writing. And, um, what I did was I, I, took texts that I had written for the gallery and began to kind of tinker with them and turn them into fictional fragments. Um, I began to take spam emails that like wellness influencers or my bank, Wells Fargo, would send to me and kind of transform them into into my own words. Um, and, uh, and then as I began to accumulate these fragments, um, I started to kind of put them together um, and see how they worked alongside each other. And I, I thought of myself more as like a sculptor moving around bits of material or a, a painter kind of seeing how shapes relate on a canvas um, than as a fiction writer trying to create uh, any kind of like story arc or plot. Um, and and so by the end of this two and a half months, I worked every day, just like I had done at the gallery. Um, I had about 90,000 words and I had a kind of rough structure that this, this moved from the third person to the second person to the first person. Um, and, uh, and that was the manuscript that I submitted around. Um, I think that I submitted the manuscript to about 50, uh, 50, literary prizes and presses and um, received rejections from maybe like three or four, Uh, just heard back, didn't hear back from most of them, just absolute radio silence. Um, (laughs) And, um, and then one fence books got in touch about a year and a half after I had submitted um, and told me that I had won the fence prize in modern prose. Um, and uh, I was, yeah, I was thrilled and extremely surprised. Um, I had kind of given up on the novel at that point. Um, and I was really lucky to find Fence because Fence is 
uh, very committed to publishing work that is both outside the literary mainstream of kind of, you know, consumable, um, fashionable literary fiction, and also work that doesn't fall into kind of any recognizable camp of experimentation. So for me, as a person who had no idea what she was doing as a fiction writer and no idea how to sell myself or create a novel that would be sellable. Um, this really was the only press that, that I think would publish that, that kind of novel that, that was coming from nowhere. Um, and I worked with my editor on, on revisions for several years, uh, because the initial draft was so, uh, it was really rough. Um, and yet it did provide a, a backbone that we could kind of elaborate a novel out of. Got it. And that actually um, beautifully addresses <laughs> uh, my question, which was about, yeah, the journey that that text took from 2019 when you won the prize to, to now um, being published. But uh, it sounds like, yeah, that two and a half months was invaluable in getting that backbone. Um, uh Eva, I think I'm going to throw to you to. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, Valerie. I, I re, you reminded me in, in uh, talking about your your uh, writing process about that line: um, "Inspiration is for amateurs," and you know, write, writing writing is labor, and writing mm-hmm. is um, and you know, I really like also you refer to yourself as an art worker, and that you know, the worker and labor comes through both the novel and the way that you talk about it. Um, yeah, um, I, I guess I I am interested in um, what I, what what is Valerie uh, you writing right now? Or what are you working on um, at the moment? Yeah, um, so I'm currently working on my doctoral dissertation, um, and uh, in a strange way, in a very strange way, the dissertation continues some of the themes of the novel. So the novel is quite obsessed with um, this problem of perspective and, you know, occupying a body and then speaking for that body and the kind of disconnect that comes between embodiment and representation of that embodiment. Um, And uh, my dissertation is called Body Camera. um, And I'm now in a film and visual studies department, and I'm looking at uh, police body cam imagery through the lens of film studies uh, to interrogate how this uh, this footage ramifies in the U.S. court system. And what I'm especially interested in is the fact that police body cam footage, because the body cam is worn on the chest of the police officer, um, places the viewer directly in the embodied standpoint of the police officer. So body cam footage asks us to occupy the position of a, of a police uh, officer of a cop, um, frankly, of a state violence worker um, as they go about their job of uh, kind of uh, protecting uh, social order, protecting capital, protecting the interest of the state. So as a viewer, and especially as a viewer, um, uh, as myself, as someone who looks at um policing and uh, body cam from it, footage from an ab- abolitionist lens, I'm really troubled by the fact that I'm asked to occupy the first person perspective of a state violence worker when I watch footage that is supposed to 
keep them accountable to communities that is supposed to kind of reveal um, whether or not they're doing their job correctly, whether or not they're harming people. Um, so this kind of ambivalence of looking at this footage that is supposed to um, make policing transparent to the public, that is supposed to hold police accountable to the public, um, and yet being asked to, to look at this footage uh, that occupies a particular juridical function through the perspective of the person um, who, who it's supposed to, to, to kind of hold to account is incredibly ambivalent. Um, and I'm really interested in this tension of, of what happens when state violence is whittled down to a first person perspective that I'm supposed to step into the body of and, and empathize with to a certain degree. Um, so I, I think that writing the novel and thinking through point of view um, and the way in which point of view both like connects and alienates and, um, and enlists uh, a reader or a viewer into uh, a narrative or into a character um, uh, equipped me to think about uh, to think about body cam footage in this way. And another thing that I'm working on is um, a film project with a collaborator um, who's a fellow PhD student and a filmmaker, uh, Max Bowens. Um, we are working with um, actual police body cam footage and compiling it into a feature length uh, nonfiction film um, that that really interrogate that that um, kind of forces viewers into this sensorial experience of the police officer in a in a kind of um, longer and more sensorially immediate way than we usually receive with body cam footage. So usually when we see body cam footage, we're looking at it for like. 30 seconds we see a clip on social media or the news and and max and i are thinking that if we if we kind of piece together footage in this way and we don't um give it any of the kind of traditional conceits of documentary like a voiceover or any explanation but just force viewers to sit in this perspective for the length of a, a kind of standard um feature-length film around 90 minutes um that this incredible ambivalence and tension of of what body cam footage is doing and what it's asking um, will come to the fore and and enable people to perhaps look at it more critically. Hmm. Both That's of those projects sounds cool. yeah really really interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, is it traumatic working with the body cam footage at all? It. It is difficult, and and I'm trying to shy away from body cam footage that uh, depicts really overt or sensational moments of violence. Um, similarly to in the novel, like the the novel um, kind of skirts around a lot of gendered violence that occurs in in the art world in the gallery world. It, it doesn't um, portray any moments of um, sexual violence or harassment or abuse outright, but it does attempt to kind of you know, trap the viewer in this really uh, extreme feeling of like a gendered oppression without uh, without giving any like really like horrifying gory moments of violence. Um, 
I'm trying to do the same in my dissertation work and in, and in this film project, because I think that violence need not be these kind of sensational moments that can so often um, like act as uh, they can almost be like a selling point or they can, they can really produce this kind of like extreme emotion that I think um, is not helpful in interrogating the kind of mundane um, pervasive everyday violence uh, that, occurs um that occurs within gendered subjectivity or that occurs within the viewing of body cam footage i don't think that we need to see police officers brutalizing people um in order to understand the work of policing as inherently violent yes indeed um i think both of these lines of inquiry or these projects are uh, uh, really interesting and also um yeah very relevant um, and uh, in our present moment. Um, Valerie, th- thank you so much for uh, talking to us about Thieves today um, and uh, also for uh, uh, creating opportunity for me and Liz to, to uh, yeah, join forces in, in, this, yes. in this, this way. <laughs> yes, it's um, been delightful. Yeah, but yeah. so thank, thank you and good luck with your projects and I hope we'll have you back to talk about them when they are further along the line. So yes, thank you, Valerie. Absolutely. I hope so too. Thank you both so much. It's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. And thanks, Liz. Thanks again for co-hosting. No problem. Thank you, Eva.